Welcome to Amato's fifth quarter podcast. Listen to incredible conversations with former high-profile AFL, A-League and NBL players who discuss their lives and respective professional sporting careers. Previous guests welcomed on the podcast include... Dustin Fletcher, Al Roy, Travis Stork, everybody, Tyson Edwards, Brett Maher, Dale Pickett, Eugene Griffiths, Kevin Brooks, Jack Fitzpatrick, Bill McDonald, Sam Jacobs, Calvert, Marcus Ferris, Sean Reddish, James McIntyre, Andrew Vlahoff, Graham Corn, Brian Curl, Jason Akamatis, Chris McDermott, Mike Ellis, Kevin Lich, Matt Smith, Michael Gilson, Brendan Teague, Jordan McMahon, Brett Burt, Matt Shanahan, Rupert Stafwell, Dusty Rakeheart, Sam Gibson, Ricky O'Loughlin, Dylan Addison, Daniel Georgetsky, Dom Tyson, Sergio Fendi, Adam Snyder, Ricky Grick, Rick Latson, Rod Jamison, Toby Thurston, Scott Lee, Andrew Jarman. Links to all previous episodes are down below for your listening pleasure. But without further ado, let's get into this next episode of Amato's Fifth Quarter. They've got a brand new stadium, a big one. And they're going to put a big flag up there in a moment because the eagle has landed for the Premiers in 2018. There it is. Brisbane have won it. The orange order is restored. It took just one season of transition, but Brisbane Raw Premiers, now title winners, champions of Australia. The 17-year drought is over. Sydney, the NBL 22 champions. 3 0 sweep. They win it 97 to 88. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Amato's fifth quarter podcast, episode 44. This is your host, Daniel. All is very good, very blessed, very grateful from this end. And as always, hoping all is well for you listening from your end. Thank you very much for tuning into the podcast. Most appreciated and hopefully you continue to enjoy the content. For installment number 44, we have the pleasure of being joined by Jewel McGarry medalist and Adelaide Crows original Andrew Jarman. A couple of highlight moments throughout this conversation include growing up in the northeast of Adelaide using balloons for kicking practice with younger brother Darren as kids making it onto North Adelaide senior list in 1983, winning a McGarry medal and SANFL premiership in 1987, moving to Norwood ahead of the 1990 season, being part of the inaugural Adelaide Crows squad in 1991, including the Adelaide Crows' first ever game in round one, 1991, against Hawthorne and ironically his brother Darren, his costly miss in the 1993 preliminary final loss to Essendon, and how it still haunts him to this day, the difficult era under Robert Shaw, his shock delisting by Malcolm Blight ahead of the 1997 season, as well as returning to Norwood to win another McGarry medal and another SANFL Premiership to end his career. So in terms of his AFL career from 1991 to 1996, Giles played 110 games for the Adelaide Crows, scoring 92 goals, and he was part of the Adelaide Crows team of the decade. So let's get this one underway. Amato's fifth quarter podcast, episode 44, in conversation with Andrew Jarman. Here we go, here we go. 
bouncing ball. Awkward. Jarman controls it. Andrew Jarman's got another one. The Collingwood Guernsey couldn't get a kick. Oh! If you don't mind Andrew Jarman. He's done quite quick enough. Jarman. Has he marked it? Yes. Skillfully done, Andrew Jarman. Anderson combines with Andrew Jarman. And Andrew Jarman kicks a goal. Marto's fifth quarter podcast, episode 44, in conversation with Andrew Jarman and Adelaide Crows original. Jars, thank you very much for agreeing to come on the podcast. It's a pleasure to have you on. Thank you, Amato. Nice to be on. 1996 was your final season at the Crows. That's nearly yep. 30 years ago now. What have you been up to since? Pretty prominent in the radio and the media these days. Where are you at in life now? In a good place, young man, in a very good place. I've got a healthy family, I've got a happy family, enjoying every day, knowing that you don't know what's around the corner. So I only focus on the now, to be quite honest with you. I'm not someone that looks back and see what's ahead. I just think that's a bit dangerous. But the radio's been terrific. I work with a couple of young men in Bernie Vince and Greg Blewett. We're having a lot of fun in the drive show and then coaching community football, which has always been a real passion of mine. And and yeah, nearly 20 years coaching uh, young men and football clubs. And yeah, but it'd be nice to win a premiership, mate. <laughs> yeah, I remember you were at Gazer. Where are you at now? I'm now currently coaching the Port Norlunga Football Club in the Southern League. My dear friend Ryan Fitzgerald dragged me out of bed one morning and said, mate, we need a senior coach. And loving it down there. We did my first year was this year, mate. Yeah, we've had to change a few things around the footy club, but we're looking forward to a good year next year. And it's, yeah, it's, look, it's, community footy is so important to the community and Port Nalunga is a beautiful community down there, as you know. So yeah, really, really enjoying it. Beautiful. And we'll get into your coaching career a little later on, but Going back to early days, so Adelaide born and bred originally from Holden Hill in northeast yeah. of Adelaide. Now, I understand you have Scottish heritage. I don't know about your father, but your mother, was she born in Scotland? Yes, my, my late mother, Evelyn, was born in Scotland. She was Evelyn Mackay, and she was born in Glasgow, and she came out on the boat when she was about 14 with her two other sisters and my grandparents. Yeah, so she was uh, full-blown Scottish, and she met my father, obviously, Australian who lived in Clemsey. Yes, and then they had the four of us. <laughs> so what are your earliest memories in terms of the formative years and also when you started playing football? Because from reading your book, Prep for this uh, interview, you're always a sports fan and you were naturally very talented at all sports. Obviously, the genes and the genetics. My father was, was very gifted and his brother and, and my grandfather, they were very gifted and, and talented in, in, in all sports, to be quite honest with you. And my brother and I am a sister, obviously picked up some genes there, I would imagine. But you've got to, Darren and I, the thing is, as you and, and people listening, is if you've got some siblings that are one or two years younger or older and you love sport, at least you can rely on each other to practice non-stop. And football and cricket, and my brother was a very good tennis player as well. And But I, I loved cricket because... My father was a very good cricketer and, and my, my grandfather and my uncle, Barry, and all these guys. But we'd practice all day, mate. We'd be going 8 o'clock in the morning till 7 o'clock at night, 8 o'clock at night. See, that's where you, you've got to work on your, your craft and your skill set and your fundamentals. And Darren and I were doing that you know, when we were five, six years old, nonstop. We wouldn't stop, mate. Yeah, you and your, your brother Darren are renowned as two of the most skilled and ambidextrous players by hand and foot, left, right, side, didn't matter. Two of the best we've ever seen, incredibly clean, coordinated, fluent, and you rarely missed a target. 
both off a step and on the run. What did you attribute that to? Was it just practicing or are you just naturally gifted? Amara, the, the genetics you pick up from your family, there's no question about that. It's hand eye, but Darren and I worked really hard on, on our skill set and our foot skills. Our, yeah, just the basics. And we would practice with balloons, plastic footballs. Balloons? Anything. Yep. And people may laugh at that, but when we were younger, we'd have yeah, we'd blow up a balloon and we'd be in our hallway kicking the balloon left and right foot when we were eight, nine years old. Because what you do is when you kick a balloon, you naturally kick it with your right foot, but we were just doing it with our opposite leg all day, every day, and we'd pop balloons and build, blow, blow up another one. And, and then we just, and I just, I remember, yeah, we were in a housing trough at Holden Hill, and you know we had a great, great suburb, we had a lot of kids my age, so we were always playing sport, but I would always walk around kicking a balloon when I was a kid. And yeah, and all of a sudden, you get your, the side of your brain that's not working on the left opposite side start to work and then all of a sudden it becomes natural to drop the ball on your left side and right foot so we just do that all the time and I tell young kids go and get a balloon blow it up and just walk around because it's a bit hard with a normal football but with a balloon you just lift your leg kick your leg and all of a sudden you start to get the mechanics working uh, both sides of your body and it's so important in today's footy and I just cannot believe the coaches out there tell players off if they kick on the wrong side of their body because they're told to kick on the right side of their preferred side of their body to kick play football in today's game, which is absolutely ridiculous. As anyone that's listening, and if you're a young parent, get your son and your daughter to kick both sides, practice both sides, handball left side, left right, whatever you want to do, and don't stop until they've got it. If you're on the boundary line, on say on your left side, that split second to just kick it on the left foot just oh, saves you that time, yeah. Absolutely, mate. You Rather know, the, than trying gift, to get around yes, and swing on the, the, the on the normal side. Yes, the gifted players. You know, the, 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 you know, there's so many gifted players that could kick both sides of their body. It's remarkable, and I just cannot, but I get so annoyed with these coaches who read manuals and listen to audio and watch and, and listen to coaches that say, no, no, focus because if they have to kick on the left side, they're getting themselves into trouble. Well, that's what happens in in football, because football's about chaos. There's bodies and there's people going everywhere. It's a gladiator sport, so you've got to be able to kick both sides to get out of trouble. That's why my brother and I hardly, hardly got injured. And, you know, I, 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 yeah, I was... Because when I go and see a situation on a game, Amado, I, I was taught and learnt, and I've learnt, taught myself, is to go into a contest, but make sure there's an exit point. So when you go in there, you get out. So that's where you don't get hurt and don't get tackled. My brother and I rarely got tackled. Who would you say, besides you and your brother, is the most ambidextrous player to ever play? I would say either Jason Akamanis or Sam Mitchell. Both. You put them right up there. They're both outstanding. Oh, they were beautiful to watch. Absolutely loved watching those two boys run around. Underrated one um, from the Crows would be Tyson Edwards as well. Tyson Edwards. Uh, Andrew McLeod was a star. Yeah, Tyson Edwards was a beautiful player. Tony Modra. You, you watch how, you know, I was blessed to play with Mods for four or five years and he's become a very close friend. He did things that I saw live on both sides of his body because he played soccer as a junior. He did athletics. He could play tennis. He could play anything. Basketball. You look at his genetics. Amazing talent, Mods. And, yeah, he, he could do it. You know, as soon as he'd land on his feet, his left foot, he go bang, and you, know, you can't stop that. And 
So I hope coaches encourage that, you know, and I, any young lad that I talk to and even coaching in the programs that I do is we, we do a lot of work on our both sides of our body kicking and ground ball and handballing and that kind of stuff. So you've got to do it. Even the young girls coming through football today, you've got to kick both sides. You've got to be both sided in today's game because it's brutal. How did it work back back in your days in terms of getting onto an AFL list? So you, you played for Gazer before joining North Adelaide in the early 80s and you made your debut in 83. You would have been late teens by that stage. Can you take us through when you first got to North Adelaide and the journey to actually get onto an SANFL list? Yeah, look, obviously Gazer was, was our local club and, um, and Darren and I never really had a trade. And football, we felt football was our way out as young men coming through and young young teenagers. My football idol was Barry Robin and always has been and always will be. Even to this day, he was the reason why I ended up at North, we ended up at North Adelaide because Amato, back in the day, we were in the West Torrens Football Club zone because they used to have zones in South Australia. And a club had to pay a fee for the individual to go and leave the club. And we were coming through the 14s and 16s. And at the time, Barry Robber and, and a gentleman called Jack Sutter, who was very strong at North Adelaide, a wonderful man. But they'd come and watch you and they'd send scouts out to watch you. And my last year with Gazer was under 16s and my brother was a year younger, so he'd be in the 15s or 14s. But we played in the grand final, we won. And then a beautiful chap called Bob Buzzenshot was my first coach at North Adelaide. But... I wanted to go to North because of Barry, even though we are in the West Time Zone. So what happened was that North Adelaide had to pay a fee back in those days. I think it was about three grand, which is a lot of money back then in the early 80s. So then, yeah, I ended up finishing up with Gazer in 16, and then it was time to go to the uh, North Adelaide in the 17. So I swaggered in there like a buffet with a cricket. <laughs> I mean, Greg Chapel had on, I think I had board shorts on, boots, a singlet and looked like a fair dinkum flog. And um, <laughs> honestly, who in the hell do I think I was when I walked in there at North Adelaide's first pre-season session? Didn't get off to a good start. And Bob Buzz, the shutout coach at the time, to his credit, pulled me aside and he gave me a good old dressing down. And then after that, I thought, right, this whole thing's changing for me as a young player. And yeah, it was a, a real good wake-up call. And so then I went through the uh, North, we had some good success. There were some wonderful players there. Blokes I played against a lot coming up through the 12s and 14s and 16s at Gazer, like clubs like Kilburn and Broadview and Greenacres, Jeff Cross, Pope Valley. They were strong clubs, you know, they're 15 deep with good players. Yeah, and then got a taste of reserves. Never played under 19s back then. You had, sorry, under 17s. It was under 17s, 19s, and then reserves. And then, <laughs> actually, Amato, not proud of this. So, my first game for North Carolina under 17s we played Sturt at Ali Oval and I think I was playing on the ball and then a lad called Andrew Underwood he come flying through and because yeah I just I don't know I've had got some aggression in me at the time back then couldn't hit a fly these days but I smacked him somehow and then got reported and got rubbed out for three weeks that wasn't like you in your playing days, were you? You weren't overly... Young, I was very aggressive and out of, yeah, a bit out of control. and I was just too much. Yeah, I hated losing. I just I had this fear of losing and I just couldn't bear. Yeah, and then, I don't know, it was just ridiculous what I did and caught me three weeks. And then after that, I had to knuckle down, mate. My mum, poor old Evelyn, she wasn't happy. So she pulled me a lot, you know, because it was an opportunity I got. And a lot of lads don't get an opportunity. And I was 
one game in and I nearly blew it. So anyway, I bounced back and then yeah, finished off okay. And then and then Michael Noonan invited me into the senior training pre-season the following year. And then it just went from there, mate. So played a few reserves games and then bang, I was on centre stage for North Adelaide in the seniors. I couldn't believe myself. I first league game was against Glenelg down at Glenelg. I started on the bench. There's only two on the bench in those days, and yeah, we won the game that day against the Bays. So yeah, it's a moment I'll never forget, and I cherish it. Now I'm only 26, so I suppose I don't truly understand how big the SNFL was in your day, yeah. and and just how revered it was. Can you give yeah. the listeners some insights, just how big the competition was in terms of standard and crowd atmosphere? Because unfortunately, since the Crows and Power have come in, with all due respect to the league, it, it doesn't have the same prestige anymore. No, and that's a great question, Amato. And yeah, it's a shame that your generation didn't understand or live through what I went through the 70s and 80s and early 90s. It was remarkable, mate. Honestly, you'd, you'd be playing in front of 15, 20,000 crowd at your suburban ground. It was footy shows, it was radio, it was media, you couldn't go down the street, it was full on. But the good thing was, we'd play Port V North in 1985 or 86 at Prospect Over, there'd be 15,000 there and they were in tight and it was just unbelievable. I can, I can actually, just talking about it now, I've got goosebumps. And the great players you played against and the great players you played with, you know, North Adelaide, we had a terrific team in the 80s under Michael Noonan and and then you'd be playing against Greg Anderson, Craig Bradley, Russell Ebert, Russell Johnson. It goes on and on and on. And every team, there's no easy games. And there was stars everywhere in every club. And then after the game, you go in, you get changed. And then you have a shout, you have a couple of beers with Greenville Dietrich. You'd have about a slab before we go into the club rooms. And then the thing is, mate, you'd go in and you'd have a beer or you'd, you'd talk to the, the members that pay their money. And they and you're touching in, you're talking to them, you're doing photos. That's what I loved about it because you're you're connecting with your fan base and the supporters that love their football club, which was wonderful. And, you know, you could have a beer with them. You could sit around the bar and have a beer with a supporter and talk about the game and the footy club. And that's what it was all about. These days, I don't know if they still do that in the fan pool. I don't know, but it was enormous, mate. It was, it was, and then we had the state games, South Australian and Victoria. I was very honoured to play in 15 state games for South Australia. And we knocked off the Victorians three or four times and Graham Corns did a terrific job as the coach and, and you're playing with the best players in the country. Like it was, every line had superstars and the ball hardly hit the ground at training and oh, mate, it was, it was wonderful, mate. I haven't got one regret about my footy career in the 80s. Is it, Sad for you to see how the SANFL is not as revered anymore, or is that just the times now? The landscape's changed, mate. So it changed to when the Adelaide Crows were formed from the nine teams in the sample. The sample is that I'm an old traditionalist by heart, and for me, it would be great to have the traditional eight teams. It would be great to get West Torrens and Woodville back <laughs> in the comp, but it'll never happen. And I know the Adelaide Crows and Port Adelaide and also the Adelaide Crows, you know, they need to have a reserves team. So, yeah, look, it, there's wonderful people in the sample, but you're right, it's not the same, mate. And all the state leagues now, and WA and the Waffle, I coached two years in the Waffle, and there's a big decline there since my day in 2009 and 10. The VFL now, it's 
very much like a reserve comp. So, yeah, it's changing, mate, and it's changing every year. And you've got the under-18s. I think the Saints will need to look at what they're going to do with the reserves competition, even though I'm a traditionist. I don't want to see the reserves gone. I'd love to see the 18s played before the reserves and then the A grade, the seniors on a, on a game day. Make it like real atmosphere, a real party type or a real game day type atmosphere, which they do in local footy in the country. But yeah, in the next five to seven years, it's going to change again, mate. And another thing people probably don't realise back then was football was not a full-time job. It was semi-professional. No. And you guys had to work day jobs as well as playing football. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe you worked as a termite exterminator for a bit and then you also worked at Cooper's Brewery throughout your playing yeah. time. I mean, SANFL and, and second-tier competition still is semi-professional, but how difficult was it to juggle football and work at the same time? The sample was pretty good. So you'd get up at 8 o'clock, you'd be finished by 3, 3.30, you get to training at 4.30, you'd be on the track at 5, have a feed, and then you get home and rest up and get ready. So in the 80s, everyone had a full-time job and then we played footy. So that was just the norm and no one, yeah, it was fine, mate. And then, yeah, you just, you trained your three nights a week and then play Saturday and then, yeah, you recover on Sunday. But then when the Crows formed in the early 90 or 1991 and then you got, I agreed to sign and play there for the start of it. I had a full-time job with Cooper's Brewery because I had a career change from North to Norwood. And the Coopers family were wanging from back in those days because they were at Statenborough Street, Lindbrook, where they had their boutique brewery. And then when the Crows formed, it changed the whole life because we had to catch up to bigger Victorian bodies and their legs. And if you look at their legs, they were strong because all their grounds were muddy and heavy. So they trained in that seven days a week. Where in South Australia, our grounds were a lot drier. And we were like running on an ice skating ring. We would just run above the ground and just tippy-toed around. So we were always behind physically, but in terms of the skill set, we were a lot more advanced, I reckon, than a lot of those Victorian clubs in the early 90s. But at the end of the day, when you're playing those suburban grounds in Victoria in the early career, it was tough. And, you know, I had just started a young family. So, mate, I was, I was getting up at seven, seeing the kids quickly, bang, and then go to training. I was getting home at 9.30 at night because we had to get the weights in. We had two-hour training sessions, running programs, it was really tough and mentally and physically and then every second week you jump on a plane and hey mate I'm not whinging about it trust me but when I reflect and, and look back at it, it yeah, it was a great experience but it does wear you down over time and then I reckon oh, I finished up in 96 about 98 99 I just started to go full time so it all changed then so you just missed out then yeah and look I, I, I would have loved to have been a full time footballer for a couple of years just to see if I could improve my footy by another 20% each year because you've got the experts preparing you now. These guys now are playing the 36, 37, 38 because the way they prepare, the way they diet, the way they eat, the way they train. I would have loved to have had that experience for two or three years just to see how better I could have been as a player. They're hanging on longer now, the yeah, AFL they players. Are. They're playing yeah. until their late yeah. 30s, whereas even yeah. 10 years ago, yeah. it was like 32, maybe 33, 34. Yeah. yeah. Now, it's, yeah. So I crawled home. I crawled to the line, what, uh, in the 96. I was banged up. and Because you don't stop. You've been going since 83. And then it was 96. And then I reckon, and then yeah, obviously I had a year with Nord in 97 just to finish off my career on, you know, on a bit of a high. And then 
like 31, I reckon I was. But you can imagine now if I had those experts and professionals around me now in nutrition and conditioning, I could have gone to off 36, 37. Easy. All right, everyone, it's time for a quick break on A5Q. I want to talk about Cappuccino's, the perfect mobile cafe for your event catering needs. Established in 2019 in Adelaide, South Australia, Cappuccino's is our family business, here to provide you with freshly brewed, hot barista-made beverages on wheels, using locally roasted La Crema coffee beans with our preferred blend included for any event needs. Cappuccino's caters for weddings and engagements, sporting events, school, university and work functions and birthday parties, just to name a few. We pride ourselves not only on delivering warm, smooth and delicious coffee at a great price, but also fantastic professional customer service with a smile. If our customers walk away satisfied, it means our job has been done correctly. If you're based in Adelaide and need catering for your next social event, Contact us directly via phone at 0418-894-570 or email at cappuccinos at hotmail.com. And don't forget to like us on Facebook and help spread the word. Now that we have that out of the way, let's get back to the show. A couple of highlight moments throughout your career. 1987, McGarry Medal as the best SNFL player for the year, SNFL Premiership as well with North Adelaide under Michael Noonan, by this stage you're playing with your brother Darren and you destroy yep. Glenelg in the grand final by 82 points after you'd lost the two preceding grand finals. Yes. Three grand finals in a row with the same two clubs playing. Where does that sit amongst all of what you achieved in your career, considering you've been on the losing end a couple of times as well? To clarification at this stage, it, um, it would appear that uh, the winner of the 1987 McGarry medal... We've got clarification from the North Adelaide Football Club, Andrew Jarman on 23 votes. And to present, to present the medal, the 1987 McGarry medal, once again, Mr Max Bashir. And on behalf of the football public of South Australia, I congratulate Andrew on winning the medal for 1987. He's had a marvellous season and he certainly uh, has deserved this very high honour. Andrew, on behalf of football and on behalf of the league, I now present you with the 1987 McGarry Medal. I'm speechless, but um, you know, I never ever dreamt of being a McGarry medalist, not with the likes of all the champions that have gone by. And uh, I'd just like to thank the North Adelaide Football Club, um, been magnificent, they've looked after me. Um, I'd like to. Um, Thank all my family, uh, everyone that's been associated with me, uh, all the all the umpires. You're a great bunch of guys. Um, but bad luck to Macca. Um, I'll see you after, mate. Um, but now, thanks very much for having me here. Um, I've got no more to say. I can't say yeah. a word. Glenelg deep into attack, and the premiership belongs to Mike Noonan and North Adelaide. They've tried so hard for so long. They win in 1987, getting the monkey off Mike Noonan's back. 23-7, 145, Glenelg 9-9, 63. 
the margin a most impressive, a most, most emphatic 82 points. The captain and the coach, Ed Race. Yeah, look, right up there. It sits right up there on the old football mountain. you got to remember, so we played in some of the best football. I, I think my best football was in the 80s. I, I don't think I played as well as I did in my AFL career than I did in the 80s because I played under a wonderful coach in Michael Noonan who was a great teacher and he was ahead of his time. And then I had a great team around, you know, around me and I was blessed to play with some beautiful people and great skillful players and played in 85, 86, 87, banged up 88, but then bounced back 89. North Adelaide and then they won at 91. It's a remarkable achievement to even get in a grand final, let alone play in four or five in the last six, seven years. So, and that, that 87, because there was a lot of pressure on us, mate. We lost the two grand finals, more so the 86 one when we went in as favourites. But that 87 one was, I've never been under so much pressure because you don't want to be someone that's lost three in a row grand finals. They're hard to get into, let alone win. And yeah, we, we showed up that day and I was really proud of the footy club and our supporters and, and Mike Nunn and yeah, he's a great leader. And yeah, as a, as a coach, he drove us hard. He got us in great nick and yeah, so yeah, that was terrific. And then, yeah, it, it goes quick, Amato. You know, these lads today, you know, this goes quick. This, this football journey, is really quick and you've got to appreciate it, you've got to put the work in, you've got to sacrifice. But yeah, you know, I try and teach you know, boys to be respectful of the game and, and, yeah, and just keep playing with some good integrity. And what about being able to share that moment with your brother, Darren? What did that mean to you and also for your family to be able to, to play in that premiership together? Oh, it was enormous, mate. It, it was, it's enormous. Not too many blokes playing a grand final with their brother. Dacos boys, you, you see the smile and the and the love they have for their father and their mother, and it's, it's beautiful to see. And that's what this great game's about. You share those beautiful moments. And you know, our late mother was so proud that her boys who had come from Holden Hill Housing Trust, tough area, didn't have a trade. We don't have a trade. We're not plumbers. We're not bloody architects or bankers. We you know we relied on being street smart and getting through the tough periods and, and doing our mother proud. And that's what we wanted to do was make sure mum was proud of you know, Darren and I and our sisters. And, and yeah, just to see the smile and the, and the tears in her eyes just meant so much to, to my brother and I. So, yeah, it was great. And, and just my little brother, you know, I still worry about him, still yeah, bloody look after him, even though I don't have to, but that's what older brothers do. And, yeah, so we... Yeah, it, 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 no one can take that away from us, mate. It, it's there forever. So we're yeah. very grateful and... And I definitely relate to that. I'm an older brother myself, yeah, and you never stop worrying about them. You don't, do you? So, the 1989 SNFL Grand Final against Port Adelaide, disaster. Yeah. One goal for the yeah. game, you lose by yeah. nearly 100 points. What happened? Mm. 28 and a half minutes gone, the Magpies supporters. There it is! Port Adelaide champions in 1989. 15 goals, 18 to North Adelaide, one goal, eight. That's a good question, Amato. That's a great question. And I've never watched the game. I haven't watched any of the losing grand finals. I've only watched two, the 87 97. Is that game. because it, you just move on or is it because it's too painful? It's painful, mate. It's painful. None, none, none of my teammates have watched it. You can't watch them. They're painful. They're, 
unless your coach makes you watch them, and, and these days, today's coaches make you watch your losing grand final, and we went in a bit banged up, and that's taken nothing away from Port Adelaide, who we loved and respect back in those days. We played them in a Father's Day game. I reckon it might have been two weeks or three, I don't know, before the final started. And that was one of the best games I can recall playing in against Port Maggie's. It was at Footy Park. I think it was a Sunday. It was brutal. It was so tough. And I felt that we played our grand final that day, to be honest with you. If you look back in 1989, that Port v North and Stephen Riley was, you know, him and Josh Marnie were banging each other up. It was a cracking game of footy and it was tough and it was... I felt we played that grand final that day. And then we got into the grand final and Jack Cale, the master coach, he didn't give too much away in that Father's Day game. And then when we played him in the grand final, he did a couple of tactics on Darren and I. Yeah, and then the bloody weather changed. All of a sudden, I remember this footy park was full. It was 52,000 or whatever it was, and I could hear the screaming and I could see the wind start to blow up and then this black cloud just came from nowhere, Amato. And I'm thinking, oh, God, and we weren't playing well. You know, Port Maggie's were playing really good football and we couldn't get past Greg Phillips. And, mate, they once you give them a sniff in a grand final, Port Maggie's, it's tough and it's just about all over. And half time we were a bit flat as a group and we had some boys that weren't, yeah. It was a horrible day, mate, and uh, well-deserved by Maggie. They were the best side on the day and, yeah, we just couldn't keep up, mate. And that was your final game for North Adelaide, wasn't it? Yes, it was. Yes. Yeah, so you, yeah, you joined yeah. Norwood for 1990. What prompted that move? I mean, it was before I was born, but it was pretty big at the time, wasn't it? Yeah, it was, actually, and to my surprise. But it was a tough decision because I love North Adelaide, and I still do, and it's my footy club. I left some good friends, and I upset some good friends. My brother wasn't entirely happy when I told him. And, and Norwood came with a terrific offer financially and with a job with Cooper's Brewery. I think I had to take some responsibility because our senior coach, Mike Noon at the time, after the game, had a bit of a crack at me and my brother and Nick Redden for our performance. You know, at the time I looked up, you know, got the shits and I just disappointed myself when I reflect years later, you know, I should have just copped it. And But anyway, I, I, you make these decisions, I had a young family, yeah, so then Nord came and Neil Baum was the coach and so I had one year there and that was okay, but I just mentally and physically, I just didn't feel right. I, I just wasn't in the play. I wasn't in the right headspace. My body was just constant, intense. It's full on. And I thought I felt I let Nord down in 1990. And then I didn't play in the elimination final against South for Nord. I did a knee. I did a little ligament thing. So I sat there in the grandstand. I thought, right, I'm going to come back super fit next year for Norwood, have a big year in 91, and then before you know it, mate, the Adelaide Crows were formed, and the birth of the Adelaide Crows, I didn't see that coming, to be quite honest with you, so I had one year at Norwood, and then the next minute, I'm in a Crows jumper. Yeah, and that leads us into the Crows days, so as you mentioned, late 1990, the club's established quick and sort of disorganised the way the club was established. And you were one of the first players picked up by Graham Corns to join the inaugural side. That first preseason, there was a squad of like 80 players or something yeah. that one by one peeled back until you got that final squad for the 91 season, October 1990 to March 91. What are your memories from that time? It was chaos. 
to be honest with you, mate. It, it was real chaos because the media were having a frenzy time at it. Graham Corns got announced as senior coach. Yeah, we had a squad of up to 80. There was, I think, 10 of us contracted already. It was carnage, mate. It was hectic. There was stuff going around. We had no facilities. We had footy park. Bill Sanders, we got appointed as CEO. Neil Curley got appointed as footy manager. Graham Corns brought a lot of his people from Glenelg, like Trevor Jakes, our fitness and runner, property stewards, all, all that kind of stuff. A lot of them came from Glenelg. And then you got all these players who disliked each other on game day. And we're going to the change rooms under, under the footy park and all the boys would go. So the North boys would go that side and the South boys would go there and the fourth boys. So we weren't really, you know, even though we were formed and, and we were, re- you know, we had to be ready for season 1991. Chris McDermott, who's a great friend, Tony McGinnis and I were probably the senior boys in that group. So it, we, like that, Bill Sanders had a NACO hut as his office. They just got a crane and put one in. We had no weights room. We had nothing, mate. So we, there was the umpire's room on the northern end of Footy Park back in the day, and it was a titchy little room. And there was 80 of us trying to do weights. It was unbelievable, but it was exciting because you thought, right, well, this is a brand new journey. It's going to be exciting. We're going to be travelling in Melbourne. We're going to, it, mate. It was unbelievable. So I loved every minute of it, and just seeing the, the small growth in the club and. And then once we settled the list down, and then once they, because I think we had a list of 45, and then we could still go back to your local clubs to play. So there was a lot of that being sorted out. And then we recruited Bruce Linder and Tony McGinnis and Mark Micken and all these guys came back. So they targeted a lot of the South Australian boys to come back. So it was it was exciting, you know, mate. It was, And then the media were for it, media were against it. And then there was a lot of unknowns out there with the supporters. Will, will anyone come and watch us? <laughs> what are we? What's our jumper look like? Who are we? Who's our identity? So there were so many things, but all we had to do was get fit. But the, but then once we settled down and we got into a bit of a groove and they started getting some weights and it was tough. It was really hard work. And that first six to eight weeks of pre-season training was the toughest I've ever been in. My body just copped a pounding as with all my other teammates. But once you get through that, and then you start, okay, well, let's see what we can do next year. And then then when the fixture came out, and you, <laughs> round one, Crows v Hawthorne, who were one of the big superstars of the, for the last 30 years, and look at their names, mate. Oh, my God. <laughs> and we're playing them on a Friday night at Footy Park. Yeah, my brother decided to go and... Yeah, he decided to go and play for Hawthorne. Oh goodness me! And then they, there yeah, it was. It was tough, but exciting. And yeah, I just got wonderful, wonderful memories, mate. Your brother Darren decides to head to Victoria to play for Hawthorne. Yeah. Now, now you mentioned he wasn't too happy when you went to Norwood, and when he went to Hawthorne, there was obviously a lot of criticism from SA supporters. They weren't too happy. Yeah. He got booed in yeah. in round one. What were your yeah. thoughts on it? Did you understand his decision at the time? Did you agree with it? Yes, I did. Yeah, look, I just felt Darren needed to get out on his own and create his own identity. He just needed for his confidence and just get out of Adelaide and get out of the bubble, so to speak. So he just got married. and No, I just thought, you know what, go for it. And when he told me, because the Adelaide Crows were disappointed because they felt they had a verbal agreement with him, but I know they didn't. I know he said he didn't, and 
and I've always backed my brother. But the Crows were very disappointed because he would have been a nice fit. Him and I playing together again for Adelaide Crows would be sensational for our mother. But she wasn't happy round one because I was standing Darren in that round one game and she was she rang me on the phone and she, you know, in a Scotty voice, she make sure you look after your little brother tonight, oh, Andrew. That's the in best. A Scotty. That's awesome. And I said, Mother, he's going to die tonight. You better say <laughs> goodbye for the last. Anyway. But she was proud because she, she had two scarves on. She had Hawthorne and her crows one on. But his career at Hawthorne was magical. And uh, he won a flag his first year there, even though he didn't touch the footy. I went and watched that. Because that was at Waverley. Yeah, yeah, against Hawthorne. West Coast, yeah. That's it. And I was so proud of him. But even though he didn't get near it, I loved the Angry Anderson halftime entertainment. Everyone booed him, but I loved it. <laughs> when he came out to sing in his Batmobile. But Melbourne's the home of Melbourne's football. You know, like, I, I think Adelaide's the home of but Melbourne's just like, it's a different world over there. And and he loved it. And then Robert Shaw got appointed in 95. And then he said, look, we need to get your brother back. And I think they were just starting to get a little bit, yeah, it's time to come home because Sue had her family and Darren was missing mum and, and that. So then, yeah, we I got him back for 96 season. And then, buddy, we lasted, I don't know, 15 games together. And that was it. And just before we do get into that, I do want to talk about round one, 1991 against your brother yeah. and the famous Hawthorne yeah. side at Football Park. So 86-point yeah. winners, three Brownlow medal votes for yourself, and you play against Darren for the first time in the AFL. What are your yeah. memories from that first game and kicking off the Adelaide Crows history? I think Hawthorne should win, Sandy. I hope it's a fantastic game. It's a great night for South Australian football. And certainly the crowd will carry the 20 players in the Crows jumpers as we watch the brothers Jarman in the picture there. And I think it will be a great game that we'll see tonight. A credit to the public of South Australia. They've given the Crows full support. And here they go to open the season, to open their AFL career. And it's Negri who gets a mighty thump down towards the half forward line. The Crows through Trigenza. Crows have really done everything right tonight. I, I haven't found a cheat in the side as the siren goes. Lidner will want to finish it off. He shoots towards goal. Oh, he finishes it off all right. A marvellous victory for the Adelaide Crows. Bruce Lidner finishes the night with four goals. And an 86-point win to the Adelaide Crows in their AFL home and away debut. One more standing ovation for these 20 players. One of joy, because we didn't know how many people would turn up that night, mate. We had a bit of an inkling, because we, we played Essendon in a trial game at Footy Park, and there was like nearly 40,000 people there, and we're thinking, what's going on here? We thought they were there for all Essendon, you know. Kevin Sheedy brought his boys over. And that, that and it was a perfect night too, mate. It was like 28 degrees and the start of you know a new season, and and it, and it was a, a new beginning for South Australian football. Not everyone was happy with it, but yeah, we put our flag in the ground, and yeah, it was it was look, it was tough to play against me, little brother. To be honest with you, it was it was hard one mentally. I had to make sure I got through that and stayed switched on, and you know every now and then I let him know where I was coming for him, but. It was an off night. It was unfortunate, but I don't think I was the best player that night. It was David Marshall for us. He was sensational that night. He should have got the three Brownlow votes because I thought he was unbelievable. And you know, he's a beautiful bloke and a, a terrific player. But 
we were just like, we came out, all we had to do was just be competitive, mate. We, we didn't want to embarrass the state. That was what we were talking to each other about. We led beautifully by Chris McDermott, a great captain, and obviously took a, a big hit from the big derm. So, yeah, mate, it's, yeah, I can still smell the bloody hot chips and the, 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 the crowd, and I can hear them all now. And Yeah, so it was a great day for South Australian footy. It got us off to a good start, mate. In those early years, so say like 91 to 95, those first few years at the Crows, what was it like around the city? Because the Crows were everything, particularly in 1993 when they made the finals for the first time. What yeah. was the buzz like around the Adelaide Football Club? It just felt like a rock band. We just felt like we were a rock band. We, we couldn't do anything. You couldn't go anywhere. You couldn't, you had no privacy. There, there was no private life anymore. It was, and then the emergence of my dear friend, Tony Modra, Wow, he took us to another level. A shy country lad, the most gifted footballer and talented person I've ever met. He turned South Australian footy upside down. He was enormous, mate. I've never seen anything like it. Just thinking about what we went through to get him to, to training and get him out of training because there'd be 30, 40 screaming girls waiting out outside of a training door after training. That never happens. And that's no exaggeration, is it? That's, that's, that's no, 100%. Oh, mate, we... We had to hide him in boots and, and wear wigs and, and shift his car. And we had to, look, mate, we were doing stuff on Tuesdays and Thursday nights to get him out so he was safe. He couldn't do anything. He, the only place he'd go and find privacy in his own time was when he was on the water surfing. He loved surfing. He loved the water. He'd stay out there for hours and hours before training and he'd sneak in and then train and then he'd sneak off. He had no life. And um, the Crows have period. had big, big players like, you know, Tex Walker and Eddie Betts and those sort nah, of players. But they, they, they didn't, they, well, they haven't gotten anywhere near the nah, fame that Modra got. They, 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 they should be carrying his bags to the change rooms, Tex and <laughs> Betts and these guys, you know, and I love Tex, but they're, they're nowhere near Tony Modra, mate. He, he was, and it's unfortunate what happened to him because when Blighty obviously came in and cleaned him up, or cleaned it all out, and, you know, but anyway, he, I've got those memories that will stay with me forever. So I'm 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 a lucky one, mate. Halftime break here on Amato's fifth quarter podcast, and I'd just like to take a moment to thank everyone who has tuned into the show. The support is very much appreciated, and I hope this episode is finding you well. If you're enjoying the show, it would be a massive help if you could consider subscribing and leaving a rating and a review. Gaining as much positive feedback as possible helps feed the podcast algorithm and boost the show's visibility, which will therefore allow for other Australian sports tragics to see and listen to the show. Five stars, of course, would be fantastic, but I'll leave that up to you. Now, enough of that. Let's get back into it because the second half of A5Q is about to get underway. One chapter of the Adelaide Crows history that even still to this day gets spoken about a lot, and that's the 1993 season, known yep. for the club making finals for the first time, Tony Modra, 129 goals. The 1993 preliminary final is one that is brought up a lot, and I don't mean to yep. make this a nightmare, but no, no. you're 44 points up at halftime, and Essendon come back to win at the MCG. What yep. happened at halftime? Time running out there. Essendon definitely need a quick goal. I don't think they're going to have time to do it. And for the second time in this match, an incident play with the footy stuck in the centre of the ground. 
and the siren sounds. Well, what a turn-up this is. It's not over yet. There's a long way to go. But at half-time, it's 6-6 to 12-12. You wouldn't read about it. Second half about to start. The most remarkable opening half with Adelaide leading 12-12 to 6-6. It's a seven-goal margin at half-time. A place in the grand final for one of these two teams. Very important possession. Watson's got it. Watson goes. Essendon has qualified for its 26th grand final and next week will be playing Carlton. It's been one of the most remarkable games in the long history of this great game. To be seven goals behind at halftime. Good question. It, it, that's probably the only rare games I've watched over and over to see what happened. And look, again, it comes down to being, being a young group mentally. You think the job's done. There's still an hour of football left. It was hot. It was crazy. We should have been 60, 70 points up in that first half if we kicked straight, if we controlled the ball a bit better. But we go in half-time, everyone's panicked up. They said, this is terrific, knowing that Kevin Sheedy is a dangerous coach. He'll throw his players around. You've got to be on your guard. And I remember having some discussions with Tony McGuinness and Chris McDermott and at half-time and we got to be ready. This next 10, 15 minutes is going to be critical. We, we've got to make sure they don't get a run on because if they get a run on, we're in all sorts with their crowd. And it was on 90,000 people there. And it's about taking off your opportunities and making sure you finish off. And again, mate, at half time, everyone was pretty relaxed and I thought we were okay. And then as we went up to get out on the deck, we just made sure that we just, the boys just make sure we do things well. and. Yeah, and then it just, we crossed the line. And then all of a sudden, we go to our positions there, Amato, and then Kevin Sheedy showing everyone around. The magnets, you know, the, the names are oh going next minute. I've got Michael Long next to me. And I'm thinking, oh, God, this shouldn't be happening. He, <laughs> he's too quick for me. Yeah, he ran a mark. And then they got some momentum, mate. And in those days, the midfielders didn't really change. So I didn't really change with anyone. I was just playing centre. Tony McGuinness was Rover and Chris McDermott Rover. And we, we, you'd do 90% of it on the ball on your own, but we needed a chop out because the game was played at neck, you know, high, high speed and, and it was fast and there was no there's no rest. And and that's when footies should be able to... Well, I'd love to see that style of footy play today where blokes stay in their... Some boys stay in their positions and then just play fast footy. And, mate, I had a chance to settle it. I had a chance to calm the, the nerves and stop momentum. I was 20 metres out. Those goals, kicking them at training every night and just making sure. And then my technique let me down. And then, yeah, and I, I felt within myself when I missed that goal, I thought, this is not good. But I didn't want to show that in my body language because I just wanted to make sure you stay positive. And, and then I think they, they kicked the ball in and then went bang, bang, bang. I don't know if they got a goal or a point, but yeah. And then they got, mate, after that, they were hard to stop, but we still had chances to win the game in the second quarter, the second half. Even the last quarter, we still had a chance, but then the last 10 minutes, I, I felt I felt the game slipping away. And then Timmy Watson did that magical goal, and then yeah, once you've you know, got a champion like him on fire, you've you got no chance.
Yeah, and that was another thing that I wanted to speak to you about. So you mentioned it then. So there's three minutes to go in the third quarter, and Essendon are obviously coming hard, but you took that mark, and you had yeah. the opportunity to, to settle the nerves. Yeah. You never know what could happen if you kick the goal. That is a shot that you would you would score 99% of the time. Yeah. To me, watching the replay, you looked shocked and devastated when you missed it, and the crowd oh, sounded yeah. shocked. I'm sure yep. you've replayed that moment in your head a few times. Yeah. Good back by Fletcher, yeah, but he's yeah. left Modra on his own. Modra's kicked to the goal front. Jarman! He attacked the ball. He was about the only one. The others were worried about bodying. Scotty Lee off. And Wiedemann on again for the Crows. Well, Andrew Jarman, you'd really expect him to kick this. Oh, you do, mate, because you can't get it back. You don't get those opportunities back. And if I punch the kick a bit more, because I teach kids, get your three iron out and punch the kick. Punch the ball. Hit hit it like a three iron. And what I did is I got my bloody pitching wedge out. And because the breeze was going from right to left, and I just knew, and I was copping a fair bit of abuse from all the boys around me, Essendon lads, and I just knew all I needed to nail this, settle things down, we get a bit of momentum, back the ball, back the centre bounce. If we got another couple more, then we would have broken their back. That's the opportunity you get. So you've got to make it work count. And then when you see, and, and I, you know, I know I'm a bit critical of today's players missing goals, but if you don't put the work in, and, and it's a coach killer. How many behinds? sides kick these days is a coach killer and it hurts you when lost the Crows have missed have lost games because they've kicked too many behinds Port Adelaide so it's no different that's one fundamental that hasn't improved is goal kicking and I'm part of that because I should have nailed it as a senior player deputy vice captain of the club at the time that's my job to finish that stuff off and I didn't does time heal the wound or do you actually still think about it sometimes does it bother you I think about it every day, Matt Tomato. Every day. What might have been. We, we, if I nailed that kick, we could have been in the grand final. We would have been in the grand final and we would have won the grand final and I would have been a, a premiership player for the Adelaide Crows within three years of us joining the AFL comp. Yeah, because I've, I've had Graham Corns on, I've had Chris McDermott, Scott Lee, and I ask them all the same question. I'll ask you what the Adelaide Football Club would have been in the grand AFL scheme of things had you would have won the premiership in 1993 and and what an opportunity that would have been to put the Crows on the map forever because a team winning a premiership in their third season that would have been enormous particularly a non-Victorian club as well yeah unheard of because it's still run by the VFL it's still a VFL competition to this day and that it is what it is but for us to achieve that within three years as part-time footballers on a national scale, our lives would have been different. Our lives might have been changed forever, all of us, that would have played in that day and our footy club. Our footy club would have become a destination club. I couldn't imagine what it would have been like. We, we would have been, yeah, it would have been a, 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 just unbelievable South Australian footy. And the way and South Australian footy, the benefits they would have copped would have been unbelievable. But... Things change, mate, because then what happened, what, four years later? Bang, Malcolm Blight wins one. So, yeah. It, so it, at that time, at that moment, with that current group, with that group, we could have had something we would have shared for the rest of our life.
but we didn't because we blew it. There was a story at halftime about a farting incident that happened. Do you oh, re- yeah. do you recall yeah. that actually happening? Every game at halftime, I'd go off and have a shower, right? So I'd go and have a shower, have a cold shower, and then put new fresh socks on and shorts and just start again mentally in my head that, right, game one's about to start, even though we're going into the third quarter. So we got all the group together, blah, blah, And as they were going up the race, Mark Bickley dropped his gut. Do you know for and a fact that him. it was him, though? Yeah, it was him. Okay. Yeah. He's admitted it. Yeah. yeah. Well, well, I know it was him. Because <laughs> okay, I was, okay. Immature at the time, but you know that he's got to wear that. And but that's not the reason why we lost, mate. To be honest. And then a few boys giggled in today's football. They're all giggling before a game and getting excited and all that kind of stuff. So I got no, I had no issue with it. I don't. It's not the reason why we lost. But again, it was a young. He's a young player at the time, and he didn't think any of it. But he was the one that, yeah, he did what he did. I still don't understand why people yeah, we worrying about it. But at the end of the day, we. We had an hour of football left, Amado, and we blew it. And we can never get it back. And full credit to the Essendon Football Club at the time because they wanted a lot more than we did at the end. Did he actually at all blame himself for the loss just because of that? I, I've never really spoken to Vix about it, but don't forget, he, he, he turned out to be a premiership captain of the footy club and, you know, he, he's had a wonderful career. So, Absolutely, you know, he, he, yeah. he was just a... You know, he, he was a hard-working footballer. He wasn't the most skillful footballer, he, and he'd admit that. He he wasn't flashy, but he, he'd get down on his knees and get he'd get dirty. He'd, he'd do all the hard, grunt stuff. He'd get in the trenches with you, and you need those guys in your footy side. But, look, what it is, it's just another great story for, for the Adelaide Crows Footy Club, which is 30-odd years old now. It's, it's had some great moments. It's had some poor moments. It's bottomed out. It's now going to have a brand-new state-of-the-art, world-class it's got a great fan base, supporter base. It's a well-respected footy club, and you know I'm just grateful that I, I, you know, I had six years as an original Crows player there, as with all my other mates, and yeah, so I'm very grateful, mate. So in the subsequent years after this, so '94, '95, '96, the club struggled on the field, finished 11th, 12th, and 12th. Do you think that the 1993 preliminary final loss was actually one of the reasons for the demise in the next couple of years? Yeah, I'd say no, but when I look back and think about it, we I think we were so disappointed with the, the prelim loss. And, and don't forget, we were starting to get in the 25, 26, 27 year old bracket as players. And I just felt that at 94, there was a lot of distractions, I think, and the expectations were enormous because you're one step away from playing in a grand final, you can do it next year. And there was a lot of pressure. Like I said, we, we just didn't, it didn't, 94 just didn't feel right. Something wasn't right. We've had three years of being up there, getting smashed six days a week. And he had, you know, six weeks off or eight weeks off. And then, and I'm not making excuses here, but it builds up. And then you start to get on a plane every second week. And don't forget, we weren't full-time, still part-time footballers. And then, you know, just thinking of 94, I don't have any good memories of 94. I can't recall what was exciting about 94. I just think maybe I was thinking oh no here we go again we've got to start all over again and can we get there again and there's some good clubs and there's some good players there's some good teams coming and 
industry. We, we just had a year of distractions. Tornsy copped it in the neck at the end of 94, and, which was unfortunate. And I don't know why. Yeah, look, I think I, I don't know. Some of our senior boys were getting a bit frustrated with the messaging and I don't know we just yeah we weren't we weren't functioning mate we weren't switched on and yeah so 93 probably did have an effect on us when you think about it when we really we should have just regrouped and got the taste and going you know what boys we're not far we're an hour away let's work harder and let's keep strong and be tight and bang ahead. but uh, it, that didn't happen the Robert Shaw era fascinates a lot of people he was there for two years 95 96 yeah. It was yep. not a great time for the club at no. all. And despite Darren coming back to Adelaide after a few years at Hawthorne, which we'll get yep. into in a minute, what were your recollections of Robert Shaw as a coach? And may I ask, what was your relationship like with him and how did you see him as a coach? Well, at the time, I think I, I had a pretty good relationship with Shawy. Now, the reason why we got Robert Shaw in is that the Adelaide Crows' decision-makers at the time felt we needed a Victorian influence. Now, South Australian football has survived for 150 odd years, and I don't think we needed a Victorian influence because we're a highly skilled state. South Australia, and to a degree WA, play a highly skilled type of football, but we didn't need a Victorian influence, and that, that's why they thought that Robert Shaw would be, you know, he was a disciplinarian, he was a hard-nosed type coach, he wanted physical football. And we're not designed, South Australian footballers are designed to play out skillful, fast, attacking football, you know, with some physical plays in there. But I had a good relationship with him compared to a lot of the senior boys at the time. I don't think Chris McDermott speaks highly of him, and he probably already said that. But yeah, so he, he was a funny kind of individual. We started off okay, to be honest with you. And then and and I think 95, we come out of the blocks. I think we won the first five. And then we lost one of the most important players of the history of the club was Sean Wren going down with a knee. And after that, our season then derailed because we lost one of the best young ruckmen in the competition. And that hurt us badly. That really hurt us in 95. And I think, so Shorey and the coaching staff were trying to find ways to adjust and they go, yeah, anyway. And then we finished off poorly and then the pressure was on for 96. But again, we had another big solid pre-season under Shorey. And look, he, he had relationships with players, but yeah, he wouldn't survive today because you got to be talking to your players and he'd be walking around with his coffee. And he, he was a different kind of individual, but he knew his stuff. Don't worry. He, he was highly intelligent with his footy knowledge. But And then again, we started off well. If you look at the 96, start of 96, I think we won our first five or six again. And then guess what happened? Sean Wren goes down with a knee. So in fairness to to Shorey, we lost the best ruckman in the comp in the two consecutive years. And when we lost him the second time, I I was flat. And I was near there when he went down with it. I heard his knee pop. I'm going, oh, no. not heard it. Yeah, I could hear it. And... He's a remarkable, beautiful soul. And then after that, mate, we were bloody floating them, keeping our heads above water, to be honest with you, because that was a huge blow losing Sean Wren. And, and I think that hurt Shorey as well, because when we had Sean Wren playing and playing well, we were winning games of footy. So there was a lot of factors involved. And then there was the group was getting a bit older. And, and then the wheels completely fell off in the last probably 10 weeks. 
96. 1996 wasn't good on the field, but that was the one and only season that you spent playing with your brother Darren, who joined the Crows. Yeah. So I imagine that's something you look at very fondly, being able to share a locker room with your brother on a national stage. Absolutely. Yeah, that was really enjoyable, mate. That was great. You share some great moments, and then you have some tough moments. But that, that's why this is one of the greatest games on earth. You got so many beautiful moments, and then there's some tough moments, and you just got to work through them. But that, that was a yeah, that, that was really enjoyable. And then yeah, I, I was starting to come on the end of it, and I could feel it physically and mentally. And then yeah, I just thought, look, this ain't going to end end well, I suppose. But yeah, we finished off on a another bad year and then obviously they made a decision with you know, Shorey let the club know that he's going to you know, move back to Victoria and and he had some issues to deal with off field because he was Victorian and because we were losing he was copping a fair whack but anyway that's the nature of footy Before we get into the final stretch of this episode we need to take one more break here on A5Q now, this podcast is partnered with Pete and Pedro, the kings of men's hair and beard grooming. The days of the caveman are now over, gentlemen. We all need to keep on top of our hygiene, cleanliness, and style. Unfortunately, most chemist store products do not really achieve this efficiently. If you want high-quality results, you need high-quality products. Pete and Pedro, established in 2013, offers premium hair and beard grooming products and tools that will actually get in there moisturize, rehydrate, and clean your scalp, hair, and beard thoroughly without burning a hole in your wallet. From shampoos and conditioners to hair gels and putties, beard oils, combs, brushes, and even nail clippers, Pete and Pedro has it all. Now, I would never promote or partner with a brand I did not use or trust. Guys, I've been using Pete and Pedro products for years now and can confidently say there are no better hair and beard products on the market. Gentlemen, if you are looking to take your grooming game to that next level without breaking the bank, do yourself a favor and check out Pete and Pedro. And if you use my special discount code, DMATO10, spelled D-A-M-A-T-O-1-0, you'll score yourself an extra 10% off on what is already a great deal. The link to Pete and Pedro is down in the description below. But for right now, let's get back to the show. At the end of 96, you mentioned he moves on and then Malcolm Blight comes in and Greg Anderson, Chris McDermott, Tony McGuinness and yourself were sacked by the club. Cleaned out, yep. This is a very yep. famous moment in Adelaide Crows history. How exactly mm. did this play out? Were you brought into a room and told, sorry, service is not required? How, yep. how did it happen? Well, I could see it coming and Chris McDermott was going to retire anyway. Well, he, I think he really retired. Okay, he doesn't tell me, but... Yeah, so we, we had a meeting. It was like September the 3rd. I was in at 4 o'clock to see John Reed, And then, yeah, went in and sat down. And within four minutes, it was, okay, see you later. So John Reed was Lighty's hatchet man at the time. And, you know, I, I would have liked to have seen Lighty to, just to eyeball me and tell me that this is why we're doing it. And anyway, but, yeah, it... it those decisions were correct decisions because he had to clean that list out to bring in some younger players and let those younger players develop in McLeod and Edwards and Benny Hart and Goodwood and these boys, Rashudo. So I went in and then Chris McDermott went in, then Tony McGinnis went in and then so it was a revolving door, mate. But yeah, it was sad, but you could see the writing on the wall. Yeah, so but it's not nice. 
being told to move on and we were the originals, but that's football clubs, mate. You've just got to do the right thing. And obviously I had, a, I had some funny moments over that six-year period with the club, but anyway, keep them on their toes, buddy. <laughs> but, but when it happened... Were you hurt, angry? Did you understand the decision? Or did you think it was the wrong decision at the time? Did you, did you have ill feelings towards the club? What nah. was the emotion like? No, nah. no, nah, nah, I was fine, mate. I was relieved. Have you ever to spoken to, to Malcolm Blight about it? Yeah, we've, uh, we haven't really... No, no, we haven't. No. Okay. Do you still have ill feelings towards Malcolm Blight? Or no, not at all. You moved nah, on, yeah. Nah, 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 mate, look at that's what a coach has to do. He has to make tough decisions to make the club better. And the club wasn't getting better. So you've got to make decisions. And it's not an easy gig being a senior coach. And he made some decisions and, you know, he put the club on, on the map and won two consecutive grand finals. And guess who he had playing for two full seasons? Sean Wren. There you go, my boy. Well done, Amato. There you go. When the Crows won back-to-back premierships in 97, yep. 98... How did you feel seeing that success directly after you'd left? Obviously, your brother Darren plays a major part in both the grand finals, which I'm sure you were very proud of. Was mm-hmm. it pure happiness to see your old team be successful or was there any envy and frustration that it happened so soon? What a fairy tale ending for the Adelaide Crows. If they needed any more, they've done a lot in the last quarter. So there's nothing left now but to celebrate. really happy and excited for the lads that did it because in some small way we all had a part to play absolutely when we talked about it as a group you know we, we had a small part just a titchy little part and then seeing the boys do it for the state and for the club it was it was sensational so now I, I was I was really happy and I was very a little bit emotional because seeing you know my little brother <laughs> we get him home and he's won a flag so, but like I said, that, that's the footy journey. You can't predict what's going to happen moving forward, but no, we were fine, mate. There was no bitterness or jealousy whatsoever. It was well done. We finally got one. The club can be respected amongst the football fraternity, so it was really good. And, and then seeing my brother unleash hell in that last quarter, that, that was one of the 
proudest moments of my life, to be honest with you. That's backyard footy back at the days of Holden Hill. That's what I saw. Well, you were a part of a premiership in 97, so you returned to Norwood that year and you were part yes. of the flag. Oh, yes, yep. So you, yep. you beat Port Adelaide and that was, what, a week after the Crow St. Yes. Kilda Grand Final? Yeah. What were your emotions like after the game, particularly the fact you couldn't be a part of the Crow's success to win a premiership as well as a, another McGarry medal? Ladies and gentlemen, I announce the joint winners for the 1997 McGarry medal, Andrew Jarman and Brodie Atkinson. <laughs> Andrew Newton Jarman, congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, what well on, um, bro? Congratulations. Um, he's been a fantastic uh, ambassador to the SNFL. He's had a bit of a stint in the AFL, and he's uh, a credit to his uh, family and himself. He's a, a tough little bugger, and uh, congratulations to the Sturt Football Club. You've had a fantastic year. Uh, it's been an interesting year. I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed football, uh, got back to some uh, enjoyment and therapy. Thank you to the Nord Football Club. To the teammates of mine who have put up with a lot of abuse and uh, back chatting in the change rooms and in the showers. Uh, to the coach, Peter Rowe, marvellous job. Uh, the job's not finished as we know. And to, um, to my family, Marion, thank you dear. My boys, uh, Charlie, Steph and Riley, who put up with a lot. And to everyone just uh, been around, thank you. Um, Chris McDermott, Russell Ebert, Tony McGuinness, Rod Jamison, Rowie, um, being there. Scotty Lee, all past Sack Crows players. We've got a little club going at the moment. Thank you for your support. And just everyone in general, the, uh, the boys at work, Triple M there, put up with a lot in the mornings. And uh, just people out in the streets, and thank you for your support. To the opposition sides, marvellous work uh, for uh, getting into me and stirring me up because I've enjoyed that. And to all the young blokes that are playing for their respective clubs, keep working hard, do the well, do the best you can. Don't be satisfied with the, the level you're at. You can always improve. And to the next couple of weeks with the final boys, let's play some good entertaining footy and uh, thank you South Australia for your support. It's all over. Port Adelaide have lost and Norwood are the winners. 73 points, the final margin. And Norwood, 19-12, have defeated Port 7 goals, 11, 53 as we go down to Peter Road. Thanks for that, TP. Number 10, Adelaide wouldn't be the same without him, Andrew Jarman. Yeah, yeah your, your emotions, they fluctuate, and mine certainly did, but because I had to keep my eye on Norwood. Because you get wrapped up into the excitement of the Adelaide Crows winning, and it, you know, it was like being in bloody Hollywood. It's enormous, you know, the 200,000 people down in the parade, and you had to not get swept up in that because I had a focus and a job to do for the Norwood Footy Club, who's been wonderful to me and looked after me really well. And my job as the senior player and, and, you know, we had a terrific side that year. But then when you play Port Magpies, and I always heard, I always loved this, uh, the rivalry between these two wonderful clubs, Port and Norwood. I wanted to taste it and see what it was like. And, and it's true. It, it is a different beast, this rivalry between Port and Norwood. And yeah, so when you beat Port by 80 points on a Sunday at Footy Park in front of 53,000, Amado, and you look around and you go, you know what? I reckon this is it. This is. It was time to say, yeah, I'm, I'm going to go out on a good note, and that's what I did in the sample. I said that'll do me. Did you know that that, that was going to be your final moment? Probably about ten minutes in the last quarter, I did. Yep. Even though I probably could have gone on for one or two more years, because I really enjoyed that year with Norden. I, I really loved it, and 
my body was going okay and mentally I was I was, I was pretty good because your life's changed you keep another couple of kids and then yeah, and the pressure and, and the demand and yeah so because it's Port Magpies that's the best way to go go out on top because they've been a wonderful footy club and I've always respected Port and thought you know what man and my best mate Stephen Rowe who played five minutes and took one of the greatest marks of all time even though he didn't get off the ground well, I said to him I said mate that'll do me clacker that's what I call him clacker Rowe I said that that might that's probably going to do me he goes yeah I'm done I've got my flag yeah the rest is history so that was it for you in a playing sense you went into coaching you returned to North Adelaide yep. four years yep. there you took the club to a grand final in 2007 yep. unfortunately went down but then went to WA and coached Perth. Was coaching at AFL level something you were ever interested in? Not really, no. Did you ever get approached by AFL clubs? Uh, I had a call from one of the Victorian clubs about maybe doing development back in those days, but it wasn't worth it, mate, because everyone settled. And I I wanted to do two years in Perth just to see what it was like and and just get out of the bubble. And, And that was good fun, but... It never really, I, I love the sample and I love grassroots footy. I love community footy and I get so much enjoyment out of it and that keeps me leveled and it just keeps me nice and controlled and calm and I, I love it. But the AFL, yeah, never really, and I didn't really, again, I didn't go looking for it and, you know, I had one club, but that wasn't really, might have been a taken phone call, I would imagine. <laughs> wasn't, <laughs> didn't really appeal to you, so you're more... The community aspect, not the sort of corporate yeah, that, organisation. Yeah. yeah, and that's what it is now, mate. It's a corporate beast. Today's players get good money and they're a barcode. That's all they are. They're a barcode. But, mate, that's okay. That's the business. It's the landscape now. And that's why when you're coaching passionate part-time footballers, social footballers who just love structure and love to learn and, and play their hearts out, that's where I get my satisfaction, mate, to be honest with you. And I've been doing it for 20 odd years now. And you're still learning as a coach. You don't, you think you know everything, but you don't. And I've got people coaching me now, you know, younger blokes that I coached. And I love it. You've got to keep learning and keep evolving. If you don't keep evolving as a coach, you might as well just hand in your badge. Yeah, very true. You mentioned it earlier, state of origin. Now, again, 26 years old, so I don't claim to fully understand the mammoth occasion that was State of Origin. I know there's a few charity games these days, but it's just the All-Stars versus Victoria, which isn't really State of Origin. You represented SA 15 times. What was it like back then to put the jumper on and actually represent your state? Amato, it is one of the great honours to play for your state. The period that I played in was played with some of the best players of all time. And we had a period there where we'd go to camp under Graham Corns, and we'd been playing together a fair bit in state games over the journey. We just knew, we felt like Superman. So when you put your jumper on, you actually felt like Superman. And you're bulletproof, and no one's going to beat us. And I look around, the, when I looked around the rooms before a game, I'm thinking, I'm playing with the best of the best of the best. This is elite. This is another level. And it was. The state games I played in where the ball hardly hit the ground, and the ball was going about 160 kilometres an hour from one end to another and it was just sheer bliss it was beautiful to play it was I felt like I was in a dream playing for my state I've just got so many beautiful memories and great mates out of it I'm one of the lucky ones mate that played for his state 
They're very powerful words. And I've seen the one game I have watched from start to finish was 1993 when SA beat Victoria at the MCG. Yeah, yeah. And, and yeah, that was a beauty. You, do you think it'll ever come back? Nah. Yeah, not probably. while I'm breathing air. It's not so much the players, it's more the coaches that don't want it because they don't want to lose their investment, which is their star players getting injured. Anyway, it, it's a shame, mate, because this generation and, you know, these young lads miss out. But, you know what, let's just bottle it up and just keep it forever. And, and it's wonderful young men like you that bring it up and talk about it, which is great. Just beautiful, beautiful memories. And every now and then I'll, I'll put one of the old games on and then I just go, wow, or just go get on the bloody Google and web, website or we'll find it. And then, yeah, God, I just, yeah, I could still smell the chain dreams and you look around and you've got Kernan and Modra and Craig Bradley and Platten. Chris McDermott. Huge names. Mark Naley and you know, Greg Phillips. It's it's scary, mate. It's bloody scary. Jars, just to finish up, throughout yeah. your entire career from start to finish, uh, any club, any league, who's the best player you ever played with and why? Who's the best player you ever played against and why? And lastly, best coach you ever played under and why? Michael Noonan was the best coach I ever played under because he was ahead of his time. He was all about skill and the fundamentals. He was all, all about the offensive style of football. He had a great knack of reading the individual to get the best out of him. And he uh, was a master tactician. The best player I played with would have been a lad by the name of Darren Robert Jarman. I think um, I know him. He was just a gift and he was beautiful and he slowed the game down, which is so important. And I was just lucky to be getting front row seats with him. And the toughest player I ever played against was Gary McIntosh. Physically brutal, offensively just a gifted, smart, highly intelligent footballer. Feared no one. Just get on his shoulders and he'll take you to the holy land. They're probably the three biggest names in Australian rules football in my world, to be honest with you. So I'm lucky. Andrew Newton, Jarman, been absolutely fantastic to have you on the show. I really respect you and I wish you all the very best in everything you're doing now out of football. Thank you very much for your time tonight. Amado, outstanding and thank you for your work and your research. Good luck with the podcast, mate. And uh, thank you for uh, yeah, letting me uh, share some memories with you. And that is a wrap for another episode I trust you enjoyed this conversation and I thank you very much for tuning in. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a rating and a review and I'll catch you all on the next episode of Amato's Fifth Quarter Podcast.